Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. This is the second part of our look at the Maharishi and his life with the Beatles. At the end of part one, our heroes had arrived in uh, Rishikesh in India uh, in the midst of a uh, retreat with the Maharishi that was due to last until uh, April the 25th. And in a bit of foreshadowing, uh, John and George arrived first, and then a few days later, Paul and Ringo arrived. Um, But they are all present and correct on the 20th of February, 1968, in uh, the ashram in Rishikesh and they are due uh, they're they're already three weeks late uh, and they're due to study with the Maharishi and others and it is a busy time and there's lots of people there and lots of people from the Beatle universe are kind of swinging in and out they are they are they are not your average uh, ashram punter hanging around here they have hangers on and people doing jobs for them and they've a slightly VIP experience they do. I think there's a definitely a two-tier uh, level, two-tier experience, and they're in the VIP express lane. Um, so yeah, they they so as well as all of the other, if you like, celebrity people who are there that we'll come on to. Um, you know, there are general uh, devotees there, but also, as you say, people coming and going. So uh, Mal has been sent ahead. Good old Mal, uh, Good old Mal. to organize organize things. Anvils, yes, yeah. Neil Aspinall. Is there for much of the time. Uh, the everyone's favourite anti-hero magic Alex will arrive <laughs> at one point. And uh, w- we mentioned in our uh, Beatles film that never was episode that uh, Dennis O'Dell comes out at one point and he's there to pitch ideas, specifically Lord of the Rings is the mm-hmm. idea that he's he's pitching um, as the as the film. And also there are discussions going on about a documentary film uh, about the Maharishi. Yes. And there's this odd back and forth about who's trying to get what out of who, you know, Um, is the Maharishi, uh, we touched upon this in the first part, is he, you know, with open eyes, just doing what he can to try and promote his cause and sees the Beatles as, you know, the most efficient messengers for getting that word out? Or is he an opportunist who's just sort of saying, I'm going to get on the coattails of this group and get what I can out of them. It's, the truth is possibly somewhere in between. I think probably somewhere in between. We mentioned in the first episode that the Maharishi was expected to retire mm. in uh, late 1967. And um, 
his contact and his association with the Beatles has really given a huge boost to his organization. And Apple is forming at this point. We need to be aware of that. You've got Apple Films. And there is a suggestion that the Maharishi says to the Beatles, you know, you can have the rights to do a documentary. Apple Films can can take this on. Uh, Joe Masso, who had directed uh, Wonderwall, says that George rang him from India saying, you know, We've got, we're going to do this documentary, come along, you can be the director. But at the same time, Maharishi's own organization has uh, put the wheels in motion to do a documentary themselves. Um, a chap called Charles Lutz, who's the head mm-hmm. of the spiritual regeneration movement in the States, is already, uh, so the wheels are turning. And this is part of the initial conflict. So he arrives in, in April to say, you know, stop what you're doing. We're already, we're already doing this. And mm. uh, there, there is that conflict between the, the two organizations. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the Maharishi is, uh, in, in some ways, he's very much like Paul McCartney. He's playing a publicity game and he knows how to get a, some publicity lined up. And it seems to suit him. Maybe I'm reading this wrong, but it seems to suit the Maharishi to say, I'm just a, an honest yogi. I don't know either Apple films or the spiritual regeneration movement films. I don't know who's making the film. I just want to tell people all about what I'm up to. That, I think that's <laughs> he's, fair. He's just lovable rogue. He's lovable. He's doing it through the medium of uh, multi-million dollar television contracts. That's all there is yes. to it, you know. Yes. Nothing to see. Nothing to see here. <laughs> nothing to see here, but... Except two documentaries. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, uh, in, in fairness to him, it worked. You know, April 1967, uh, not many people knew about the Maharishi by April 1968. He's a, he's a global figure. Yeah, I think, yeah, so it de- definitely, you know, he, he, he played the game. The game. He did play the game. Um, so so there's all these people, so including uh, Dennis O'Dell, hanging around. I suppose, what was the ashram like exactly? It was like Butlins, Jason. It was like Butlins. <laughs> and Stephen, what, what's Butlins like? <laughs> because that's a reference. I've never been to Butlins. Either. I've never been to Butlins, but I've seen, I've seen that Ringo Starr film, That'll Be The Day, uh, okay. with David Essex. So I'm sure it was just like that with waltzers and uh, amusements and that. Well, Butlins is a very uh, British reference, you know. Yes. Um, so uh, for, for, for our global audience, Stephen, because there's this people listening all around the world, um, Butlins is obviously a holiday camp and that's what the Beatles likened it to. People will have seen the movie Tommy. Yes, possibly. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, Tommy's holiday so, camp. Yeah, but, uh, Ringo, uh, who did play with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes at, at Butlins as the kind of house band pre pre-Beatles fame, uh, he described it as a spiritual butlands. But essentially, if, if we're going to get geographical, it's located in the Valley of the Saints, in the foothills mm-hmm. of the Himalayas, Rishikesh, which is known as the yoga capital of the world. Good. So it's uh, about 14 acres, six bungalows, each containing five or six double rooms, flower beds of red hibiscus blossoms. I'm reading from the... Uh, Brochure. Uh, <laughs> Four stars would meditate again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in addition, the, the Maharishi had his own bungalow, and there's post office, lecture theatre, swimming pool. So it, it, it's a sort of self-contained community. And um, Paul compared it uh, to a summer camp. And he said, you would get up in the morning, go down to a communal breakfast. The food was vegetarian. I think we probably had cornflakes for breakfast. I think you'd be more adventurous than that. Hmm. After breakfast, you would go back to your chalet. You see, chalet. Gotcha. 
meditate for a little while, have a bit of lunch. Then there might be a talk or a little musical event. Basically, it was just eating, sleeping and meditating with the occasional little lecture from the Maharishi <laughs> thrown in. It's that, it's that Paul would have been good in the army vibe again, where he's just yeah. like, just, you know, doing what I'm told, up, down, all the rest. So this is, this is Paul speaking in, in uh, 1996, 1995, uh, in, in anthology. So is he sort of trivializing the experience? You know, it was all very nice and a, a little lecture now and again. And uh, Well, we've said it before, Paul is the great compartmentalizer, where he will just sort of look at a situation, imagine himself in it, go along, process it, move on to the next thing. You know, he's... Um, he certainly has never uh, seemingly referred to the whole experience as being earnestly on a quest of trans personal transformation. He seemed to just be somebody who likes experiences and he was just putting it in his experience backpack. I think so. You know, this is the point where he's hanging out in London. He's opening himself up to, you know, avant-garde music, filmmaking. This is just seems to be another thing on his uh list of experiences, things that, that, that uh, he, he wants to sort of dip a toe into the water. He's not, he's mm. not kind of going full on here. What you have to realize is that the experience that the Beatles get, as you said at the beginning, this is a VIP experience. This is not necessarily what, you know, if you or I pitched up uh, yep. to join, this is not necessarily yes. the, the, the same experience. Their, their, bingalo, their bungalows, their bungalows even, were equipped with electric heaters, running water, toilets and English style furniture. And Cynthia Lennon says her, her room with John had a four poster bed and chairs and, you know, so this isn't the, uh, you know, um, I'm thinking of when Leonard Cohen spent most of the 1990s up, I think Mount Baldy was the name of the place where he uh, yeah. was kind of sleeping with virtually no... Um, uh, no bedding or no accoutrements at all as a, as, a, as a monk. This is not that. It is not a monastic experience. And there is uh, an aide there, uh, a Mrs. Cook de Herrera. And mm -hmm. uh, she, she's an aide to the Maharishi. And she says uh, the Maharishi obtained many, quote, special items from a nearby village so that the Beatles rooms would have mirrors, wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, mattresses and bedspreads. So you get the sense that if it hadn't been the Beatles, she'd be sleeping on the floor. Mm. Um, and she does say, uh, you know, I don't think the Beatles ever realised what had been done specifically for them. They just sort of assumed that um, this was the experience that everybody was getting. And she does describe there being little domed meditation huts uh, that you could go into. And uh, just coincidentally, there were four of those, mm -hmm. uh, sort of one per beetle. So I don't know. Nice. It's, it's unclear whether anybody else would have been allowed to use those. But um. yeah, I mean, certainly at this point in their lives, they have been wealthy for a while and they are kind of defining this kind of rock star wealth. Um, I, I, I know I, I think I might have told the story somewhere else, but I love this tale of when they were recording Magical Mystery Tour. I think it was Roger Ruskinspear from the Bonzo Dog Duda Band, or maybe it was Neil Innes, was kind of amazed that the Beatles got their dry cleaning back and they tore off the plastic and just threw it on the floor. And they'd never, they were saying they'd never seen people so wealthy or well off that they would just throw away the plastic and get on with their lives. So they, they might have, have, have been, they might have developed a kind of, um, what would you say, a sort of a wealth blindness at this point, that other people weren't living the way they were at the ashram? I think so. And it, 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 it's a tribute to how far we've come that, uh, you know, we're all sufficiently wealthy now that we can throw away plastic. 
and 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 it, it's absolutely a totally fine and normal thing to do and it's yeah. not causing any harm no. uh, to the world so the Beatles are to blame for, for that um, you, you were talking there about um, Mrs. Uh, Cook de Herrera who worked in the ashram uh, what did everybody know her as? Uh, everyone knew her as Nancy interesting uh, so Nancy Cook de Herrera Nancy Cook de Herrera uh, she'd been with the Maharishi for some time since the uh, early 60s um, and she was effectively the liaison officer between the Maharishi and the Beatles and uh, we're not really I think in this episode going to deal with the songs that they wrote no. you know, that's maybe a whole e- separate episode Well we still have sides 1, 3 and 4 of the uh, White Album to tackle at some point in the future although we, we've spoken about revolution if memory serves we can, um, we, can, we can save that so we'll save that up for another another Thing, but, but I think we do have to talk about some of the White Album songs on this Beatles in India journey. So, um, yes, everyone knew her as Nancy. Where does she fit into the whole song? Well, she was, she, she was there with her son, who is uh, Richard A. Cook III. And uh, okay. every, everyone knows him as Bungalow Bill. Yes. I'm not sure how you get to Bungalow Bill from Richard. He's not even a William. But he was the Bungalow Bill of Bungalow Bill fame. Yes. And uh, according to Nancy, she and her son were very friendly with all of the Beatles except for John. So, hmm. you know, she identifies early on and she said he, he was certainly a genius, but he was distant and quite contemptuous of the uh, wealthy Americans and specifically the clean cut college attending uh, Richard or Rick Cook. And according to Nancy, the song, uh, the continuing story of Bungalow Bill was inspired when she and her son and several others including guides all went out on a tiger shoot she would say this was presented as being a traditional if in india you must go and shoot a tiger and uh, so they didn't think they were doing anything other than you know like a sightseeing trip uh, Mm -hmm. bring your bring your gun uh, yeah, so they, what's funny is it, the, the literal experience of Nancy and her son Rick Bungalow Bill is the exact same as the song. Um, so they, they go out, there's a pack of elephants, they, they attack a, a tiger, they do that thing that um, is still kind of grotesque in this day and age where they kind of pose for photographs with the dead corpse. And, um, you know, this... You, I think it's a very reasonable argument to say this is not really in keeping with a peaceful, at-one-with-nature type vibe of the ashram. No. And this was, uh, th- this was called out by Lennon, who says, you know, wouldn't you call that slightly life-destructive? So mm. uh, Lennon had talks about this uh, in one of his last interviews in 1980, and he said, uh, Bungalow Bill was written about a guy in the Maharishi's meditation camp who took a short break to go and shoot a few poor tigers and then came back to commune with God. There used to be a character called Jungle Jim, mm-hmm. and I combined him with Buffalo Bill. It's sort of a teenage social comment song and, and a bit of a joke. But yeah, it's, it's a very literal telling of the story. There's also a quote here from Mia Farrow um, in her autobiography. She says, a, you know, a self-important middle-aged American woman arrived moving a mountain of luggage into the brand new private bungalow next to Maharishi's, along with her son, a bland young man named Bill, hmm, maybe, Rick. Um, people fled this newcomer and no one was sorry when she left the ashram after a short time to go tiger hunting, unaware that their presence had inspired a new Beatles song, Bungalow Bill. And Bungalow Bill, or Richard or Rick, he seems to have... Um, thought about what he had done, uh, this uh, all-American bullet-headed Saxon mother's son himself, yeah. and never hunted again and was quite guilty and sad about it. 
Yeah, so he, he, it seems to be by the time they get back to the ashram, he's thinking about what he's done, uh, you know, sitting on the naughty step. And uh, <laughs> he, he has a conversation with the Maharishi. And for some reason, Paul and John are part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he, he feels guilty. And he is now a photographer for National Geographic. You can find his website uh, online. And uh, he's got a little uh, sort of article up there about it and says he never hunted again and he effectively only shoots things with a camera now so in a way that's, that's nice that's, yeah. that's nice. <laughs> well i suppose i mean i, I guess uh, we, we we all have a journey to go on he is he, he he's he's forgiven and i think yeah a photographer for the national geographic is perhaps the exact opposite of uh, somebody yeah. who uh, is is being uh, what was it life destructive as uh, as lennon said himself but it's in it's it's interesting that that one incident Mm-hmm. is now sort of immortalized in song and everybody ha- everybody who was there has a take on it so you, you you give that quote from Mia Farrow and she says you know this self-important middle-aged american woman arrived people fled this newcomer but she wasn't a newcomer she'd been with the maharishi longer than Mia Farrow she'd been there since the early 60s she was part of his uh, organization but yet Mia Farrow has her arriving with these great kind of uh, you know almost like cartoon well, it, it, luggage bags and trunks and things like that it's the power of the retelling of the story, really. Exactly. The song retells the story and then people will kind of process it in their own way. You do kind of, you, you know, you'd be led to wonder in what context did uh, did it, did the event pass into a song? You know, did, was that in the privacy of John's room or would he have sung it in public to them to mock them? Or, uh, you know, where does it arise? Because as soon as he breaks out a song like that in the ashram, people will know exactly what it's about. Yeah, that would have been very embarrassing if uh, you'd been Rick and, you know, you came down to your cornflakes the next morning and Lennon is singing a song about you in those <laughs> times, you know. Yeah. Add, that, add that to the list of uh, questions we'll ask Paul when he comes on to the uh, podcast. When he comes on to the podcast. Yeah, you wouldn't know what to think. You'd be like, oh, he's writing a song about me. But it's like, you know, would you... Would you would you would you would you let would you let it go? Um, the so so they're in the ashram and it's 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 a big place. Um, apparently, there's about forty staff there. There's cooks, there's cleaners, there's a full printing department. As you mentioned, there's a post office. It's a little tiny, you know, meditation um, village. But it's also it's kind of this secure compound. There's gates and barbed wires, and it's you know it's uh, you know it it kind of veers into the. Um, What's the word? Kind of the cultish, obviously. It is. You've got to keep the unenlightened out. That's the uh, <laughs> yes. There is, but you, you know, seriously, you've got to think. Well, do the do the cooks, the cleaners, the printers, the joiners, the or do do they get to meditate at all, or do they just uh, uh, just hover around in the background, trying not to interfere with the celebrities meditating? It is. A, it is a very odd setup, and I think it's. It's the presence of the Beatles and Mia Farrow and, uh, you know, Donovan and Mike Love. And it, it's the presence of those people perhaps changes the uh, the experience for everybody. But, yeah, it's it's like a little self-contained village. And the press are there. So, so the press are outside the compound. Yeah, um, a lot of the time. A lot of the time filing stories, mm. trying to get interviews with people. Uh, Paul is sort of willing to engage as is his way and he's giving mm-hmm. quotes and he's posing for photographs the rest less so the maharishi is saying to the press you know just give them some space let them engage with the program then we'll we'll sort of do something so again to his credit uh he's not parading them in front of the press at least not yet 
No, but in some ways he doesn't need to. You know, the 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 work is being done. You know, he's got press at the door. All publicity is good publicity, and it must have been remarkable at the time because. The the thing we need to keep in mind about this trip is that this is the last time that all four Beatles travel away together on a holiday. And they have travelled, you know, as a foursome, uh, obviously for for work and tours and all the rest, but they have travelled on holidays and trips before. In 1967, there's the trips to look for a Greek island. Um, You know, they travel in pairs on holidays together where John and Ringo might go on holidays. And, you know, there's this underlying uh, thing that happens throughout the 60s where, you know, they do kind of like each other's company. Once this crazy thing happens to them, they stay in each other's orbit. And they they talk about this in in the years afterwards, that Elvis had nobody and they had each other to try and process it through. Um, But India, uh, unbeknownst to them at the time, but maybe slightly ominously in retrospect, is the last time the four of them go on a holiday. It's not really a holiday, but they are still presenting all as one and, and they're all there um, together. What does that mean, really? Well, I think uh, it, it, it is interesting that the whole interaction with the Maharishi and, and Rishikesh in particular is transformative in a way. But as you say, they, they are still, they have each other. They're, they're still a tight group. Uh, mm. the, the, the wives and partners are present. So, so there's the four Beatles, there's their entourage, there's the, 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 the partners, they're all there. And then after India, uh, which ends incrementally over a period mm. as people as people sort of peel off and leave, they never do this again. And there's a sense, I suppose, after India that they there's no desire to do that. Uh, they're finding other things or perhaps the fact that is it that India isn't for all the sort of communal living, it doesn't live up to the expectation. It doesn't live up to the that idea they had when they were looking for the island in, in Greece, for example. You know, we could all live together and it would be it would be great. And then you think, well, if you all live together, you just wouldn't get on and you wouldn't agree and, and, and living in each other's pockets. And they've never they've never had to confront that before, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think they, they you know what's happening and it's it's. As is the way, it's probably not really explicit. It's more kind of subconscious and unsaid is that something that is potentially there to bring them together is actually reinforcing their differences. And we'll we'll come on later on about how they all leave separately. But there's a whole lot of leaving that happens as a result of this. You know, in the aftermath of all of this, you have John and Cynthia's breakdown. You have Paul and Jane's breakdown. You have, you know, it's it everything kind of starts to yeah. deteriorate or fall apart or change in the 12 months after India. Exactly. Ringo will leave at one point, George will leave at one point, and then the band is is no more. And mm. I, 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 is it the fact that they have some big falling out in India? I don't really have a sense that, that that's the case. It's more that what has kept them together is the touring is mm-hmm. the, that that focus, and then there's a runoff for that from that, you know, and then you've got Brian is there as a, a as a force holding them together. He goes, he he's no longer there. The Maharishi steps in. It's not the same. They're pursuing different interests. You know, uh, Paul is it's a it's a summer camp for him. He's interested to find out what's going on. George is absolutely one hundred percent devoted to this. John too initially. Ringo not so much. So the very fact of trying it's to... It's just devoted to the Beatles, as we know. 
Exactly, exactly. So the, the very act of trying to find something that will hold them together highlights the fact that it was the touring, it was the life on the road. And the flip side of this is, how would it have looked to the outside world? Because I, I think, you know, in, in, in the 21st century, we're obviously used to being hyper connected that I can, you know, TikTok some fellow over in India straight away and we can have a, a relationship. I, I wonder how it must have seemed to the outside world that, you know, these four very famous people went to a place that in 1968 would have seemed very remote and far away. And, you know, these kind of um, very sort of hyper connected kings of Western popular culture, um, you know, are suddenly seen in newsreels and news reports and newspaper pictures in a very different physical space. So to the outside world, it would have seemed, oh, man, they're, they're, all four of them are over there together. They're still this four-headed beast. Yeah. Um, although what we have seen at the end of 1967 is that it's John and George that are going on to the TV programs, the chat shows, to sort of mm. uh, proselytize for uh, the Maharishi. But that sense of isolation, that sense of them all traveling together and that sense of them being sort of absenting themselves. It's almost that you think the whole of Western youth culture is going to, is waiting for them to come back mm. with, with the secret yes. know, to, to impart uh, some, yeah, some magic yeah. secret that they will unlock everything. They know what they're doing. And as we touched upon in the first part, you know, there's this, um, you know, coming after, you know, the bigger than Jesus remarks and, and George sort of kind of sneering at Cliff Richard, you know, it's kind of a, you know, there's almost like a, a fight against Christianity that actually if the Beatles are going to fulfill this bigger than Jesus, well, what does the Beatles plus religion actually mean? It's it's really potentially very, very radical. I think so. And it's difficult mm. for us, I suppose, in the 21st century to appreciate because of, as you say, the instant news, interconnectedness. And celebrity lifestyles as well. We kind of take celebrities yeah. and their lifestyles as a parcel, but this was the Beatles selling a lifestyle. Yes. So they, they, they basically, they've, they've absented themselves. You know, we said, you know, they, they traveled together before, not for this length of time. And mm. it's, it's announced that, you know, they will be away for a fixed length of time. They pre-record singles to be put out in their absence. And... Everyone's waiting to hear mm, what they've got, what, what they've got, what, what, are they what, what they've what, learned, what are they going to bring back? And then we, we can all take, we can all join in and we can all take something from that. There's a couple of things we think of when we think of the Beatles in India. One is that big kind of famous photo session, which again is like one of these all classic, you know, school photos, yes. uh, <laughs> except, you know, a lot more colourful and, and, and many more flowers. That's, that's again, the Maharishi's doing, isn't it? And you could argue it's more promo that he's trying to put in place. It is. It's, uh, it's basically uh, more publicity. And there is a journalist called Lewis Lapham. Uh, who is there and he was given access and he talks about this. He has a book. Everybody has a book. And it said uh, Maharishi cast himself as the director on a movie set, oversaw the construction of a tier of bleachers as well as all the seating arrangements. And again, that's interesting. If you look at who gets to sit closest to Maharishi and, and yeah. uh, there's a, in the same way that people previously wanted to be beside the Beatles in the photograph. And uh, he, he told the photographer, before you snap, you have to shout one, two, three, any snap, you have to shout. Now, everybody, cosmic smiles. Uh, everybody, everybody into the land. So yeah, he's he's organizing the way your mum or dad would have organized your uh, your your kind of holiday 
photograph. And Lapham does say it is about promotion. It is, he, he sort of sees himself as almost, and I suppose he is the school teacher. He's the camp director. He's, he's, mm. but always with one eye on promotion and publicity. And I think as you said at the beginning, you can be cynical about that. Or is he just, he recognizes he has a valuable promotional tool uh, mm. with the Beatles. He will have seen the number of uh, followers increase as a result yeah. of the publicity around the Banger trip and in, 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 the, the, the back end of 1967. So he knows what he's he's got. But at the same time, you know, he's obsessed with helicopters and cars. And <laughs> y- 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 Well, the y- helicopter story is another famous Maharishi story. Yeah, so this is where where he's going to fly to, and this is all caught on film. And I think this film sh- is shown in, in anthology uh, where there's a helicopter, and it's one of those mm. sort of bubble helicopters. It's a very rickety looking thing. You wouldn't you wouldn't get me going in it, even if I was going to get slip the secret of uh, <laughs> the afterlife. You know, you know the meaning of life, Stephen. You just keep it to yourself. I do. I, I keep it to myself. But Paul talks about this in anthology and he said, you know, John was very keen to get up in the helicopter with the Maharishi. And afterwards he was saying, you know, why, why were you so keen? And he said, oh, to tell you the truth, I thought he might slip me the answer. <laughs> Paul said, that's very John. You know, you're always trying to uh, get ahead it's of a, everybody else. It is a funny, sweet story. It's a funny part of the anthology. Um, so the, the most important things that the Beatles are there for is to get a break and to meditate. But I think before we talk about that, we'll take a break ourselves. End of part one. Intermission. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. Now, the whole point of the Beatles being there, of course, was to meditate. And again, we kind of have this John George you know, on one side split and Ringo Paul on the other side. And, you know, John and George, particularly George, they're getting the most out of the meditation experience. Yes. I mean, John, uh, there's a really strange uh, quote from John where he just says he was kind of meditating all the time. And he says, I had, I had, was having dreams where you could smell. (laughs) What? And he says, I do a few hours. I I blame the food myself. But anyway. He says, I do a few hours and they could trip you off three or four hour stretches. It was just a way of getting there and you could go on these amazing trips. So one, he's using the language of drug culture. You know, it's like an amazing trip uh, to meditate. But I was absolutely intrigued by that phrase. I was having dreams where you could smell. So I went and looked this up and apparently you can't smell in dreams when you're dreaming. You cannot smell. No, you can't. 
because you just can't. You can't. You can't move actually as well when you're dreaming. Do you know that? That's um, that's why some people kind of jolt awake. Um, so yeah, it, it John is perhaps overegging the pudding a bit where he says you know he was locked in a room for five days meditating. I don't think the um, the the Maharishi would have uh, allowed that. But pad, pad locked him in. You know, um. <laughs> but but George is very positive. Uh, George quote from George: the meditation buzz is incredible. I get higher than I ever did with drugs. It's simple and it's my way of connecting with God. Hmm. And you see, this is what I'm saying. George George is saying it's my way of connecting with. God, John is saying you could go on an amazing trip, yeah. Uh, and you think they're 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 doing the same thing in the same place. They're having what is ostensibly the same experience, and they're talking about it in completely different different ways. Yeah, John is kind of using it as a maybe not a pleasurable thing, but he's kind of like you know what it does to him. Whereas George just is more in a classic kind of religion sense. He's more on the journey. Yeah, um, John yeah. is John is very clearly using it as a as a as a substitute for the mm. LSD experience. You know, we know he spent most of 1967 just uh, uh, gulping down tabs of acid, and uh, yes. he he's he's talking about it in that in that same language. Cynthia says John and George were finally in their element at the ashram. They threw themselves totally into Maharishi's teaching. They were happy, relaxed, and above all, find a peace of mind that had been denied them for so long. Now, Cynthia is an eyewitness here, Mm -hmm. but uh, I I find she's not a particularly reliable eyewitness, particularly when it comes to timelines and things like that. But she she is uh, there and and able to tell us that, that John was happy, he was relaxed, peace of mind. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to kind of focus on that. She, she's been with him 24 hours a day uh, in their home life in Weybridge. She, I think, is seeing here, this is a different person. This is, this is yes. some kind of transformative experience. And then there's Paul McCartney who says, I found myself one with God and realized I was a molecule in the universe. No, he didn't. (laughs) Paul said, George was quite strict. I remember talking about the next album and he would say, we're not here to talk about music. We're here to meditate. Oh, yeah. All right, Georgie boy. Calm down. Sense of humor needed here, you know. In fact, I loved it there. Man, I can't imagine anything annoying George more (laughs) than Paul saying, lighten up, George. (laughs) Let's write a few songs. Oh, my God. And that's just the wedge being drilled (laughs) in between. This is Paul is this is Paul saying this in anthology, you know, so this this is him looking back and he knows he knows when he's saying this. George is going to see these rushes. Yeah. You know, um, George in the edit suite banging his head against a wall. Yeah. And we do, I mean, we do, we do, if you go all the way back to when Mark Lewison was, uh, was here, he, he does talk about that, 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 you know, Paul suddenly has a revelation when he's seeing these, uh, the, the rushes in the interviews about things that he has said and perhaps, uh, you know, it's had an influence or uh, he, he might have phrased things a little better. But in 1996, he's still being very, you know, calm down, Georgie boy. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> like Paul also said, um, you know, being fairly practical, I had set a period for staying in Rishikesh. I thought, wait a minute, I'll go for a month. Even if it's incredible, I'll still come back after a month. Hold that thought, by the way, viewers, because uh, uh, Paul is very clear about only going for a month. If it turned out to be something we really had to go back for, I would have gone back. But at the end of my month, I was quite happy to leave. I thought, this will do for me. If you want to get into it heavily, I can do it anywhere. That's one of the nice things about meditation. You don't have to go to church to do it. And again, you got to love Maka, just sort of 
you know, taking what he can and moving on to the next thing. Again, it's that sense that uh, uh, John in particular will just throw himself into anything. You know, if he's going to mm. do something, it's it's all or nothing. It's all in. George is the same, but approaching it in a different way. And Paul is being much more pragmatic. I can take what I need from this and move on. I don't have to immerse myself completely yeah. in this. You know, it's like it's like LSD. I can see what other people are doing. I can experience this myself, but I'm not going to allow this to take over my life. Now, what we also know about, um, you know, the Beatles in India is that for the first time ever, they develop a, um, you know, a surfeit or a surplus of songs. Um, you know, previously, when we follow their, you know, in something like, you know, the recording sessions book by Mark Lewis, and they're generally recording songs as they write them. And, you know, aside from, you know, the bank of songs they might have had back in 1962, they don't really have a bank of songs again until 1968, which is why eventually we get the the Isher demos and, and all the rest. Um, so we probably do need to talk about, you know, the fact that there was songwriting going on here. And, you know, there, there, there's, there's not really much else to do. It was like, if anything, it was hugely beneficial in that it got them to clear their heads, got them away from their mobile phones, <laughs> got them undistracted, uh, and got them writing songs. Oh, you're so, you're so Paul. You're so Paul. <laughs> yes, Team Paul. But I mean, it's like the, the reality is John is writing songs as well. Even Ringo is, you know, getting his songbook in order. And yep. George, if he's not writing songs directly, he's certainly. Um, filling his tank to write songs when he gets home. If they weren't going to write songs, why did they bring all their guitars with them? Yep, there you, you know? go. That's that's what I always say. <laughs> um, but do we need to mention, um, do we need to mention somebody very special? Because no songs could have been written without him. But, but yeah, I think, I think, I think it's Donovan time. Yeah, there we go. And because um, they weren't writing any songs until Donovan told them to. Isn't that well, right? I think I think I think that's right. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's very it is. It is. We can't, you know, we, we, we invoke uh, uh, Donovan. Are you saying it's very easy to make fun of Donovan? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yes, and that's why that's why we might do it occasionally from time to yeah, time. The reality is, Donovan is very earnest about his time there. Donovan remains very earnest about his commitment to transcendental meditation, yes. and we should actually respect that and take that seriously. And he didn't have any qualms as a very serious spiritual person in that ashram about having a guitar, playing music, creating songs at all. No, because I think what what he will say is that. Uh, his way of spreading the good word is through music. Uh, so mm-hmm. he's, the, he's the absolutely integral to, to the mission is the music that he's, um, he, he's pr- producing. So he does, he does talk about this. And there, there, there were supposedly discussions around the possibility of there being a concert in Delhi, and that would have featured uh, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and Donovan. I have to say, I would, I would pay good money uh, to see that. To yeah, see that concert. Um, yeah, you do wonder if, if this kind of experience kind of plugs into that get back vibe of we'll go to Libya, we'll go somewhere else, you know, music in another country. It's not a totally alien notion that they would go abroad to somewhere exotic and make music. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And also this idea that, that, that you're using music to, to promote a message of, mm. of the transcendental meditation. And, Don, you know, Donovan does that to this day. The Beach Boys uh, did it. It's not 
very many steps from the all you leaders love our world message. Mm. Uh, so, but Donovan does say that when not meditating, Paul was rarely without his guitar and he kept the Beatles party entertained and he, with parody songs like Rocky Raccoon back in the USSR. But Donovan does say Paul was not, quote, totally convinced, unquote, about transcendental uh, meditation. So I think we should probably uh, take a look at what Donovan has to say about the songwriting process here. Uh, and what does he have to say? He says, uh, he, well, he, he talks that, you know, songwriting comes easy and, you know, you can hear the results on the White Album and on my own hurdy-gurdy man. And he also shows Lennon his finger-picking style on the guitar. I've never heard that before. He doesn't uh, mention that amazing. much. But, um, uh, and <laughs> some, some quotes, some quotes. He says uh, he recalls having many a great little jam with Paul. And uh, he then talks about John and says, my new pupil, went to Ouch. it with a will and he learned the arcane knowledge in two days. In this way, John began to write in a whole new way, composing Dear Prudence and Julia in no time flat. Now, for all the the, the sort of tone there, mm-hmm. that is true. You know, he did teach him finger picking style and John did pick it up and he did write those two songs in that style and probably two of his best songs. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure John had finger picked his guitar a bit before, but I guess he probably hadn't done it in a focused acoustic style before. Uh, well, one of, one or of the had, th- had used it as or had used it as the fulcrum for his writing, maybe. Yeah. Well, one of the things that that is referenced in a lot of the biographies that that, that talk about India is that you know, yeah, they're all there with with their uh, acoustic guitars, but the Beatles really don't know that style. They don't know that kind of solo acoustic performing style. Yesterday, you know, John or Paul has uh, performed that on on his own, so they're really playing acoustic rhythm guitars. They, they there's film of them saying, you know, when the saints come marching in. Whereas Donovan mm-hmm. comes from that. Oh, I said Donovan, Donovan. <laughs> I say Donovan. I know, I know people have picked us up on this. I tend to say yeah. Donovan. Donovan. Yeah. Donovan. Donovan. Is it, should I say Donovan? Is it just my, it's my brogue calling him Donovan. It's, you know, like Dunleary or Dundrum or any of those places, you know. Don Coman. I think you should, uh, <laughs> I think you should stick with Donovan. So yeah, so, so, so Donovan is used to performing on a stage with this folk style and can therefore play his hits and can play his songs in a way that the Beatles really can't so mm. it, it is it it's it's almost out of necessity they're they're looking yeah. at what he's doing and picking this up and uh, i do think we have to give we, we do have to give donovan uh credit for this yes. i'm less less convinced that he taught ringo how to play the drums but uh <laughs> well apparently george bought him uh, some tablet drums in delhi not donovan but maybe donovan was involved in the decision making and uh you know, donovan also says that you know he shows some kind of descending chord structures to George as well. So if I said, um, uh, another quote from Donovan here, uh, George said he really had a Chet Atkins picking style, but what George was fascinated with was these descending chord patterns that I was playing, and out of it came the most heart-rending song I've ever heard him write, but also that anybody had written, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. So, you know, George is up to something there. I agree with that. I agree with that. Mm. That's the best song ever written. Um, we can we can come back to that. Uh, the, as I said, we're not going to go into a break 
breakdown by breakdown of song by song that happens. But there's probably two songs that we should mention um, in particular. Uh, first one is Dear Prudence, which is a song very much associated with the whole Rishikesh experience. I think even at the time when it came out, it was kind of almost common knowledge that it was born at that time. Yes. So this is this is a song that uh, I'm guessing most people know was written about Prudence. <laughs> oh, most people know generally. Yes. Sorry. Most people know generally uh, <laughs> that, that uh, this is a song that was written about Prudence Farrow, who is Mia mm. Farrow's uh, young, younger sister. And um, the story is that she got very into meditation and would not leave her room and that John and George became very concerned about her well-being. And uh, John has a slightly different take on that. He said uh, she was trying to find God quicker than anybody else. That was the competition in Maharishi's camp. Who was going to get cosmic first? And again, you, 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 the way he talks about that is just so different from the way George is approaching it. You know, John is saying, oh, it's, it's a competition. He's going you know, he's, he's to slip me the, the secret. Uh, who's who's going to get to see uh, mm. uh, God first? But Prudence Farrow is a very interesting character because she goes on to be a, a transcendental meditation teacher. Yeah. And uh, she uh, gave an interview to Rolling Stone in 2015 and she said, I'd been around famous people, but it had not been so interesting. The Beatles being there, I can honestly say, did not mean anything to me. But those two people that I met, John and George, I really liked them and they were very much up my alley. She said the song captures the essence of the course, that slightly exotic part of being in India where we went through the silence and the meditation. So she knew, I think, before she left the, the ashram that a song had been written about her. But it was only when she she, she actually sort of heard the album that she realized mm. the sort of full impact of the song and sort of, you know, it is a very impactful song and where it's placed on the album as well uh, after that kind yep. of opening um it, it it does it does resonate and you can see the slightly woozy feeling to the song yeah um uh, so she's saying yeah it, it really does ca- conjure up the vibe i think it's something that needs to be maybe flagged a little bit because you you might not necessarily notice it is that there is a a tilt towards the very personal in their songs in 1968 that wasn't really there. In 1967, you know, there's, there's a good bit of whimsy. Mm. Uh, there's a good bit of songs to the sex songs. So you think about even the previous two singles, Hello, Goodbye and Lady Madonna. I'm not knocking those songs, but they're not really about anything. They're just songs no. for the sake of songs. But there's a, 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 you know, a push then throughout 1968 to stuff that becomes very personal. And whether it's, uh, you know, personal based in reality like Bungalow Bill or it's personal like Dear Prudence or Julia or onto Hey Jude. Um, you know, they are they are very personal songs. They are different songs to what they're writing 12 months earlier. And we sometimes tend to forget that because they're just Beatles songs, you know. Yeah. But there there is a shift going on here that's very um, subtle. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And it corresponds with the move away from excessive studio production and studio mm. trickery from that 1967 psychedelic uh, uh, production where you're, where, where they're, they're, you know, in 1967, they're producing records, uh, but in 1968, they're writing songs. And it, it's, it's, it's more about the song craft, perhaps, than, mm. the, uh, than actually producing a, a piece of wax. Um, the other song we should talk about is Back in the USSR, which is the opening song on the White Album, um, because everyone's favourite Beach Boy, Mike Love, is yeah. also, uh, you know, signed up to the, the Maharishi and he does 
you know, that that's something he stays involved with uh, for many, many years. Um, and and Mike Love sort of claims, you know, uh, he, 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 he helped create this Beach yeah. Boys song. <laughs> So if we yeah. kind of take 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 a step back, um, yeah, we we talked about uh, the Beach Boys sort of getting involved in 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 December nineteen sixty seven, and Al Jardine was very clear that you know George and John were really sort of promoting uh, the Maharishi. So what uh, Mike Love in his uh, memoir? Now I, I I have to say, although he is everybody's favorite Beach Boy. His his autobiography, his memoir is actually quite good, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's very readable. It's marginally less self serving than I was expecting. Marginally, <laughs> high praise, high praise. But um, I would recommend I would recommend the book. But he says in that book, Paul was playing his acoustic guitar at the breakfast table, and he said, uh, "I thought he was onto something." And I said, "You know what you ought to do in the bridge part." back in the USSR, talk about the girls around Russia, the Moscow chicks, the Ukraine girls and all that. If it worked for California girls, why not for the USSR? Mm-hmm. So he, he he's basically saying he's got a very direct input there. Um, Paul talked about this and um, it's time to get out your copies of the 1984 Playboy, if you want to get that <laughs> yeah, off the I've shelf. Yeah, just got it here now. Oh, look at that. Okay, go on. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he says, uh, Paul says, uh, stop looking at the pictures. I wrote Sorry. that as a kind of Beach Boys parody and back in the USA it was a Chuck Berry song. So it kind of took off from there. I just liked the idea of Georgia girls and talking about places like the Ukraine as if they were California. You know, it was also hands across the water, which I'm still conscious of because they like us out there, even though the bosses and the Kremlin may not. The kids do. And that to me is very important for the future of the race. No mention of Mike Love at all. At all. What I one of the things I was disappointed about in the White Album box was that it yeah. didn't contain some of the songs that uh, were actually recorded in Rishi Cash, and one of those is is a thing called Happy Birthday Guru Dev or Spiritual Regeneration, and it's a kind of Beach Boys parody that they all got together and they sang for Mike Love's birthday on the fifteenth of March, and it's sort of based on. Fun, fun, fun by the Beach Boys, but you can hear the rhythm and you can hear the the mm. the germ of the idea that I think will go on to be back in the USSR. And it seems to me very clear if you listen to that bootleg recording, the Isha demo, and then the final version of back in the USSR, that there is a direct thread yeah. all the way through. So it does seem to me that uh, you know this is a song that was written effectively on the fifteenth of March. Uh, 1968, that we can be as specific as that, I, I would say that that's where the germ of the idea arises. Well, there is there is the, the germ that arises just before India, which is the I'm backing Britain bit, which yes. Paul sort of says that, that the original inspiration came from uh, th- this um, thing that arose right at the tail end, right at the end of 1967, which was an I'm backing Britain campaign where um, there was a group of secretarial staff who said they would work an extra half hour a day for free in order to back Britain. And it's all got shades of, you know, believe in Brexit and all that kind of stuff. Britain where, first, uh, Britain first. Yes. 
uh, where where they would work for free in order to support Britain and to help Britain, you know, be effective trading partner. And it, it kind of in the first six weeks in 1968, it got this colossal head of steam in certain newspapers and from certain. It was backed by all the best people, like you know Robert Maxwell, and um, even the poet laureate wrote a poem about it. And it, it it quickly fell apart because it seemed as if trades unions were were saying. You know, uh, why should people be working for free exactly? It doesn't really seem, uh, doesn't really seem, um, you know, uh, reasonable. Um, so, but apparently Paul had this notion knocking around of the head as I'm backing the UK was kind of his, yeah. his mantra, <laughs> song mantra line, so to speak. Um, and then at some point, you know, it tips into this back in the USSR. Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty wise of Paul to say, you know, that quote you just had there, you know, they like us out there, even though the boss in the Kremlin may not. That's very important for the future of the race. We do know that Beatles albums had a currency behind the Iron Curtain in the 1970s. That, yes. you know, Paul, you know, when we get into that kind of glasnost period that Paul put makes out his, I'm not going to try and say it in Russian, but his album called back in the USSR of covers on the Melodica label, all that kind of stuff, or Melodia label, um, all that stuff he is mindful of. And it does actually have a, a little seed. So the, the song does have a... Uh, you know, a longer term value than that. I think so. I remember going to see Live and Let Die mm. and the supporting feature was uh, Elton John playing in Russia. And, yeah. uh, weirdly, I don't know why that was, uh, why, why the two things were put together, but um, he played back in the USSR uh, uh, on his uh, first appearance in, in Russia, uh, despite the fact that he'd been told not to do that. The authorities were saying, you know, don't do that. So, yeah, it, it is. It's one of those things that has a resonance. Um, yeah. Well, I, as, a, as a young man, I was a Billy Joel fan and he did the exact same thing in 1987 was do big full scale concerts and Goncord with back in the USSR and times they are changing. Um, which uh, seems like a much more innocent time than 2022, but we might leave that there. You were, you were a young man, you've grown up and put away childish things, and, uh, <laughs> including Billy Joel. I certainly didn't buy uh, the reissued uh, Matter of Trust uh, triple disc box set with the uh, documentary film a few years back. It's, 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 it's actually quite... Um, it's quite a curio. It's quite a time capsule, actually. That kind of late eighties um, Russian uh, thing. Anyway, um, what we should probably talk about is that you know the Beatles, uh, as we said right at the start, arrived in the very ominous groupings of John and Paul, and then Paul and Ringo. Um, we should probably talk about how they left because they did not leave together, and the decisions of why they left and when they left, and perhaps the most striking thing is how quickly Ringo and Maureen leave. So the 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 legend is that Ringo arrives with a suitcase full of baked beans because he's got yep. a dodgy tummy and he doesn't want to eat. But there is this kind of other notion of, well, Ringo's got a young family at home and he's not really signing up uh, to stay for the whole number of weeks up until the end of April. So what exactly happens with Ringo? Um, well, yeah, so Ringo, Ringo and Maureen, basically they're the first to leave and they leave on the 1st of March. 1968. And the other thing to keep in mind here is that if we, as we talked about in the first episode, Ringo was not at that first lecture. So he mm. was not swept up in that initial sort of enthusiasm uh, at, at the Hilton Hotel. But basically, um, Ringo has always said that the issue was with the food. So 
the meals are vegetarian. They're eaten outside in a communal dining room. And uh, I think the one thing that all the people who are there say that the place was infested with uh, crows and monkeys that would try and steal the food. And um, they would do it in the road. They would do it in the road as well. And mm-hmm. it's not it's not nice when you're trying to eat your <laughs> vegetarian dal. But um, Lennon has described the food as being lousy. Paddy Boyd, mm-hmm. on the other hand, said the food was absolutely delicious. We know that Mal Evans, God bless him, was sent off to find eggs so that Ringo <laughs> could have a, have a, a sneaky boiled egg or, uh, or, or what have you. Ring, Ringo does say in Anthology, the food was impossible for me because I'm allergic to so many different things. I took two suitcases with me, one of clothes and one full of Heinz beans. Would you get that through customs? These days, if you uh, perhaps if you're a beetle, you can yeah, but you can do what you want when you're a beetle, you know. Unless you're going to Japan, so yeah. So the Ringo has this problem with 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 the food. Uh, his wife Maureen is basically uh, petrified of insects. Um, Paul yes. recalls on one occasion that she was uh, quote trapped in her room because there was a fly over the door. Uh, so she's not good with the insects, and uh, there was a lot of wildlife. I have to say. That, that that would be my downfall as well. Mike Love does say spiders, stray dogs, even an occasional tiger roamed the grounds. I don't think, Mike, there was an occasional tiger. Uh, the night signs were a shrill chorus of wildlife, peacocks, crows and parrots. The whales and cackles may have unnerved some, but I felt at peace. Ringo, on the other hand, said you have to fight off scorpions and tarantulas to have a bath. Then you get out of the bath, get dry and then get out of the room because all the insects had come back in. And uh, he complained to the Maharishi who said, for people traveling in the realm of pure consciousness, flies no longer matter very much. And Ringo, ever the pragmatist, said, yes, but that doesn't zap the flies, does it? That'd be quite good if you could uh, use your TM to zap (laughs) Zap flies. Yeah, so Ringo didn't like the food, food. Maureen didn't like the insect, and, and they both missed their children. And they actually leave India on the 1st of March, 1968. So they, like, Ringo and Maureen only arrive on February the 20th. That's eight full days that they spend, 10 days yeah. in total, um, which casts a long shadow. It's really short. Ringo and Maureen are back in the UK before even Lady Madonna hits the charts, the single that uh, they were, you know, intending to release while they were gone. And the reporters are there when they get back and they're asking them what's going on. And Ringo says, look, it's a great place and I enjoyed it a lot. I still meditate every day for half an hour in the morning and half an hour every evening. And I'm a better person for it. If everyone in the world started meditating, the world would be a much happier place. But again, 10 days, you know, uh, and eight nights in the ashram. And that's Ringo done. Yeah. Uh, I guess we know the answer to how many, uh, you know, how long would a suitcase full of baked beans last? Eight days. <laughs> I know. Eight days. Like, eight that's days. not a big suitcase of beans, you know, eight, eight beans a week. Anyway, um, the next people to leave are Paul and Jane, and they last a little bit longer. They leave on the 26th of March, 1968. So Paul spends 35 days there. And sometimes the accepted wisdom is that, you know, they were bored or they didn't get it or they wanted to do other things. And, you know, there's this notion that perhaps Jane might have been the least interested of the Beatles and wives uh, in the party. Uh, yeah. But they had planned to leave at that point. None of this is, um, they didn't leave in a rush. No, they didn't. I mean, th- you know, 30, 35 days is a long time. Mm, you, you in know, the that, Beatle universe. In the Beatle universe, you think about what, what 
how fast things move. With 35 days off, basically, being a, off from being a Beatle is, is a huge amount of time. But yeah, I mean, Peter Brown in, in his book, The Love You Make, he, he says Paul simply wasn't getting it. The mock seriousness of the Maharishi and the tediousness of the meditation were too much like school for him. And Brown also has this suggestion that the Maharishi slightly fawning attitude to the Beatles, you know, that you're the leaders of the, the Western world and youth culture and all the rest of it, that, that, that Paul just didn't like the endless flattery. Well, I, I think I think what it actually is a version of is, you know, there's the story of when um, they're negotiating with Alan Klein that, you know, Ringo, uh, George and John are all happy to sign up for, what is it, 20%? Yeah. And Paul says, oh, look, he'll be happy to take 15. We're a big group, you know. Yeah. And he's trying to barter Dan and the other three are saying, don't be unreasonable, don't be bartering. But Paul has an absolutely correct sense that the Beatles themselves are leaders themselves and they have a value and they have a worth. And, you know, it's not appropriate enough for them to just totally submit to this and you know that they're not going to be um molded or formed by the maharishi if you know that it, it needs to be more symbiotic if anything but that, that's kind of just a, a paul thing i mean i think there's a, a kernel of truth in what peter brown says irrespective of what you you think of the the book is that you know uh, paul doesn't think it's worth you know collapsing into the arms of the maharishi and yeah. you know giving it all up there is also the flip side of that, which is uh, that you touched on, that Paul is aware of the responsibility they have to the fans, to the people that mm. follow them. So he, he is aware that they have that, um, that, that, that position. So it's in the same way that George has this epiphany in, in San Francisco. We are youth leaders. We are, have, have an influence here. We can't, everybody's dropping out and it's just a disaster and the drug culture and we have to pull back from that and and he's had those conversations with John. So again, Paul, there's a natural, I suppose, cynicism or skepticism on his part and uh, I I can't really fault his attitude and I don't don't take issue with his attitude. I think there is that line between you've got to use your reputation, you've got to use your position for good, but at the same time you, you don't want to let yourself be exploited or used to promote something you're not entirely comfortable with. But Paul is also more comfortable with saying, you know, George is kind of saying, uh, well, I'm a Beatle and I have to, you know, go off and find out what the truth is. And Paul's take is, and I'm being very reductive here, but Paul is, you know, it's, it's like when Ringo says, I am the click. Paul yeah. is like, no, we are the leaders. We're actually already it. Yeah. And the, the job of that is to turn up, make records. Um, you know, if, if they submit to the Maharishi, hypothetically, and don't make records for three years, they will actually lose their value and their currency. Yeah. So Paul is not ashamed to say, we are the Maharishi already. We are we are already there. We don't need to, you know, don't follow leaders, as, as Dylan says. You know, we, we actually have already have people following us. Yeah. No, yeah. I think I, I think I, I think where the difficulty arises is simply that sometimes Paul does not present this uh, particularly well. So he, mm. he he Lewis Lapham, the, the journalist there, he says, you know, our trip to India was more out of support for, quote, George's thing. And you think that's that's not. Don't say that, Paul. No, <laughs> Don't call it George's thing. And again, in a way, he he's highlighting the fact that they're they're going in different directions. They're, they're, uh, he's drawing attention to that fact, which is there's a certain irony 
there's a certain mm. irony to that. Uh, and and Paul says fairly consistently throughout, before, during, and after, that he's there for five weeks. You know, he's only going to stay for a month, and you know he doesn't leave in a huff. He you know he he leaves early in respect to the not finishing the course, but that's yeah. always his stated intention. It's it's sometimes played off that you know it it either marks a rift or it causes a rift or. Jonathan Gould says in Can't Buy Me Love, the book, um, that Lennon and Harrison viewed Paul and Ringo leaving as an example of their once again balking on the path to higher consciousness, just as both, particularly Paul, had held out before joining in the LSD experimentation. But Paul is just being consistent and doing what he wants. Yes. And I, I, I do think, I mean, it's undeniable that 1968 uh, sees a change mm. in the relationship between particularly yeah. within the band, but particularly between John and Paul. And everybody is sort of looking for a tipping point or a trigger or something. I personally don't think this is it. That mm. the the narrative that John was upset that Paul had abandoned him in some way, that uh, he, he was walking out on the experience that they were all, that John was particularly uh, uh, focused on that just doesn't make sense to me um that we can look at you know what john's state of mind was at that time and 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 you look at the 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 songs that he's writing and particularly in the context of the the demos and i think it's important to, to, to look at the slightly different tone in the demos and how those songs then when they're actually recorded he is in perhaps in a a different space mm. a different headspace but as you say it was always clear Paul was going to leave early. So on uh, the 26th of February, 1968, there's an article in Melody Maker, and it actually says, quote, John and George are expected to study with the Maharishi for about three months, but Paul and Ringo will return before that. So even before they left, 26th of February, 1968, the music press is reporting Paul and Ringo will be leaving early. So it can't have been a shock to John that uh, Paul is saying, you know, that's us, we're leaving. And he stays for a month, over a month, you know? Yeah. Um, Other members of the party, Mike Love leaves on the 15th of March. Uh, He stayed for just over two weeks and he had tour commitments with the Beach Boys, but he becomes a TM instructor in 1972. Donovan leaves because he has a mission in music and he's sought to convey the Maharishi's teachings in that way. And he still does, in fairness to him to this day. Um, Then that leaves us on to the uh, issue of Mia Farrow and then John and George. Yeah. So Mia Farrow leaves because she has a uh, a movie uh, to do. So she actually leaves uh, apparently on the eighth of March. Um, so so her overlap with the Beatles is less than a fortnight, really. Um, what exactly happens in this sequence of events? Well, this is, leads us on to the quote allegations unquote. Mm. And. What I have to say at the beginning of, of this section is there are a lot of different accounts. Uh, it's difficult to come up with any kind of definitive assessment of what actually happened. But if we start with Mia Farrow, in her autobiography, which was published in 1997, she says that she was overwhelmed by the Maharishi's attention to her, which included private meditation sessions, gifts, a birthday party uh, that he organized for her. The allegations seem 
to focus on Mia Farrow initially. Now, again, to put this in context, context, her sister is there. Her sister becomes a, a transcendental meditation teacher. The accounts here are, are, are various. So she tells some of the other students that the Maharishi had made a pass at her. Now, again, she leaves mm-hmm. on the 8th of March, and this is, this is circulating. So we know that John and George don't leave until, uh, you know, for a month after this. But before Mia Farrow leaves, Nancy Cookta Herrera said, yep, that she heard this from, from Mia Farrow, that the Maharishi, um, th- that there was a sort of private meditation thing and that he stroked Mia Farrow's hair. And mm-hmm. Nancy is saying, you know, you completely misinterpreted this. Her sister is saying, this is an honor. It's a tradition. It's, you know, for, for a holy man to give you a hug. Uh, this, is, this is perfectly normal. And um, Mia Farrow gets quite agitated about this and says, you know, I know a past when I, when I experience one. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot going on there. That takes place. Then what happens is Magic Alex arrives and the focus then turns on you know, did something else happen? Peter Brown in his book says the woman that the Maharishi made a pass at was a pretty blonde nurse from California. In another report, she is a feisty school teacher from New York. <laughs> These are all mm-hmm. sort of stock uh, um, characters. Jenny Boyd in her book says that she sees Alex, Magic Alex, and this woman, uh, Rosalind Bonas uh, from New York, cooking something up. And there seems to be a suggestion from from Jenny Boyd that uh, maybe building on these rumors or this thing that, that, that Mia Farrow had talked about, that Magic Alex puts this woman up to fabricating some mm-hmm. interaction with the Maharishi. So it's all very, very odd. But basically on the final night that John, John and George are in the ashram, Magic Alex supposedly reports back that he saw the Maharishi and this woman, the feisty school teacher from New York, uh, in a compromising position. And it's worth stating, uh, in case people don't know, that the Maharishi has a vow of celibacy. He's supposed to be a celibate and so is not supposed to have any kind of partner or sexual life. Um, So this is kind of when taken at face value, seen as a betrayal, uh, if they believe it or as they believe it? I think so. And I think part of this is the height of the pedestal on which they have placed the Maharishi, uh, mm-hmm. that he is sort of almost godlike. And again, if you look at Lenin's history in particular, with the idea that people leaving him, people letting him down and that that's whether that's you know betraying him or dying on him or he he he's very susceptible to this and um he has invested so much in this particular belief system and in this particular individual uh particularly you, you know uh we're, we're hard on the heels of brian epstein's death mm-hmm. as well so so you got all of that and he is very susceptible to this so Patty Boyd has written a book and she said it was these allegations that really, what she says, caused life to go horribly wrong. But she doesn't necessarily believe this initially. Mm-hmm. George doesn't, Cynthia, Jenny Boyd, none of them 
really believe this, but uh, according to Cynthia, the allegations gathered momentum without a single shred of evidence or justification. Patty Boyd does say that she was sceptical about this, but then she also says that that night she had what she calls a horrid dream about the Maharishi, mm. and then she says the next day, takes this as a sign of something, says, we have to leave. So it's all circumstantial. It's, a, it's, all, it's all circumstantial, yeah. It's, all, it's only a dream, you know? It's, it's, only, it's all a dream. Nothing is real. <laughs> it happens actually all of a sudden, really, when, when they do decide to leave, and Magic Alex is in the thick of it, but there's a, a conversation that happens on the night of the 11th into the 12th of April where John, George, and Magic Alex are discussing the Maharishi, and there's a decision to, to, to leave the next morning. And according to Peter Brown, pinch of salt as well, that Harrison is furious at what Magic Alex is up to and doesn't really believe any of it. But what is documented is that they there's a John and George confrontation with the Maharishi. There, there, there is. And there, there are various different records of this and different viewpoints. But the one thing that seems to be consistent is that uh, the Maharishi is just saying, well, why? Why are you doing this? And John says, well, you're supposed to be the mystic. You should know. Mm. You know, If you're so cosmic, uh, we shouldn't have to explain it. In in the anthology book, Harrison puts a kind of emphasis on the fact that the entire ashram were going to relocate to Kashmir at some point. And he sort of says in that book, well, I had already said I wouldn't be able to do that because I had commitments to go and I'm working on a film about Ravi Shankar. Um, but you do get a sense that John's disillusionment carries the day here that, you know, for all that George is saying, you know, he, he's furious and, uh, you know, he doesn't believe it. Nevertheless, John has decided this is, this, this is, this is, another somebody else's it's that old beetle dynamic isn't it yeah. that john is essentially you know the leader and the book stops with john i think so i think that's it john john is is made a decision and everybody has to go along with that and you can see the build up to this where john is feeling he's been let down again uh mm. you know he's been let down by brian dying he has a history of that uh, he will be let down in in, in future life by by uh, he he feels the same way about the primal scream therapy. So again, it's that contrast with Paul who dips a toe in the water, experiences something, takes what he needs, and moves on. John just commits entirely, and then it's to do with the height of the pedestal that they've put the Maharishi on. And I think John, in particular. Mm. You can't really handle it. I mean, Jenny Boyd, you know, a lot of people write about the, the this kind of confrontation. Jenny Boyd writes, poor Maharishi. I remember him standing at the gate of the ashram under an AIDS umbrella as the Beatles filed by out of his life. Wait, he cried. Talk to me. But nobody listened. And, you know, there, there's lots of people who recount that the Maharishi is a bit sort of sad and surprised and shocked by the whole thing, except Magic Alex, who says apparently that the Maharishi answered Lennon's accusations by saying, I am only human. He's the only person who throws yeah. in that little titbit. So you, again, it's kind of like, hmm. I, 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 th I think we can, we can discount uh, Alex's uh, interpretation. Really? I mean, the man who made wallpaper microphones and, you know, rotating neck guitars. He can't be trusted. Well, he could be trusted to repair your TV, I think, is, is what he could do. I, I wouldn't even do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, if we go back to part one uh, of, of this uh, episode, he, according to Cynthia, according to uh, Jenny Boyd, he 
does not particularly want them to go to India in the first place. He's saying, you know, if you want a guru, I've got a guru, you know, uh, I can I can make you a guru. Um, <laughs> so at this stage, you know, he, he's very dependent on John financially. He's got influence there. You do get a sense that uh, it's not in his interest to have John under the sway of anybody else at this point. Mm. And and in, in the way that this whole experience kind of intertwines with their art, you know, the taxis are summoned from Dara Dune, which is, a, you know, a George song. Uh, while waiting for their taxis, Lennon writes a song called Maharishi, which later gets retitled into Sexy Sadie. And they have a um, a difficult journey home. Yeah. So the taxis are delayed, which the, they think is, you know, the locals are, are interfering here. Then the taxis break down, which they think is a curse that the Maharishi has uh, placed on them. And again, you get the sense of this kind of heightened sense of paranoia that, that they've got to get out of here. You know, suddenly it's like they've suddenly woken up. They're miles from anywhere. They have no support system. They've, they've, yeah. wa- they've walked out on this, this mystical man that they're accusing of something. And, uh, there is a kind of paranoia, I think, kicks in. George goes off uh, to Madras to uh, stay with Ravi Shankar. He gets ill. He gets dysentery. Again, this is the curse. Um, mm. uh, and John and Cynthia, they eventually fly back uh, to, to London. And this is the flight on which John gets very drunk and confesses all of his infidelities to um, Cynthia uh, mm. over. It must have been. A, it was a long flight, so he had uh, cover them all. Well, a lot of this appears to have been unknown to Cynthia at the time. Um, the press have been, you know, very intrigued about the whole Beatle escapade, and they're obviously waiting for them at their stops. And in Delhi, Lennon and Harrison meet reporters, and they just sort of say, well, we've business in London. But once back in the UK, they there's this sort of announcement that they were disillusioned by the Maharishi and his sort of desire for financial gain. And George is always the the person who really stayed closest to the Maharishi in the whole process that, uh, you know, he told reporters in Los Angeles a few months later that, uh, you know, the spiritual regeneration movement was too much of an organisation. And that's a a bit of a classic George poise where he he likes his interests and his his things until they get all, you know, until the paperwork arrives. So he likes making movies until Handmade becomes like some other thing. And he likes the travelling Wilburys until actually some organisation needs to be put onto the process. You know, he likes these things till they don't. He just wants the... He wants the fun. He wants the... Yeah. And he he wants that kind of personal one-to-one connection. He doesn't want everything that goes with it. He talks that way uh, about the Beatles. And we know he has this life long aversion to organized religion in 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 particular mm. and and it's it's very soon like all of this happens so quickly and it's a month later where Lennon and McCartney are in New York they're promoting Apple they're on the Tonight Show and you know they're, they're already kind of uh, undermining it and debunking it and saying we're past it yeah there does seem to, to be a sense that they have a party line established at this stage uh, as always perhaps Lennon is not uh, he's slightly more of a tuberative than, than other people so he says uh, we believe in meditation but not the Maharishi and his scene we made a mistake he's human like the rest of us Paul ever the diplomat says the Maharishi's a nice fellow we're just not going out with him anymore mm. nicer way of putting it I yeah, guess. it's a nicer way of putting it there what they're doing is they're sort of saying well you know meditation that's fine we 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 can see the benefit of that. It's just the individual. And I suppose that ties in with George saying the whole movement is too much of an organization. So they're, they're, they're rolling back from their initial 
condemnation and they're taking a slightly softer line. Um, there, there's, there's the story, which I'm not sure about, that Lenin and Ono are in holidays in, in Delhi in 1969 and reach out to the Maharishi. Yeah, this is this comes from uh, an author, Susan Shumsky, who is a TM devotee. And she says that Lenin sent a telegram to the ashram saying, I'm in Delhi, I really want to see the Maharishi. And she recounts that as the Maharishi and his secretary are discussing the telegram, the Maharishi says, I do not know a John Lennon. Um, now, what I would say is uh, Susan Shumsky has written a book. There's a very good interviewer with her, interview with her on a website called Den of Geek, uh, where she gives a lot of information and sort of background information from the viewpoint of somebody within the Maharishi's organization. And that, that's, that's uh, worth reading. But I, I'm not sure... I, I can't place that on the timeline. I can't really. Yeah, like 1968 is pretty scrutinised. It doesn't pop up a lot. Um, but Lenin does gradually come to terms with it. You know, by the late 70s, he's saying that, you know, meditation is a source of creative uh, inspiration. Yeah. And I think they all they all drift back to, to the Maharishi in the end and to meditation. And, you know, Lenin in the early 70s is lashing out in, in that Rolling Stone interview at the Maharishi as he does towards a lot of people. You know, in 1980, he's saying he was bitter. He had been bitter after discovering that Maharishi was human. And then just as he was later, felt the same way about uh, Janoff and Primal Scream for the same reason. Harrison is always closer uh, to mm. the Maharishi, and in 1975, he said, in retrospect, that was probably one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. Maharishi was always put down for propagating what was basically a spiritual thing, but there's so much being propagated that damaging the life that I'm glad there are good people around like him. And they they do drift back, and and you know during well, the- I'm thinking already of you know the beat like even in Get Back, uh, Peter Jackson's Get Back, there is that scene where they're recounting their time in India, and George is still very much on board, yeah, and John and Paul are quite detached from it at that point, or seeing it as you know another Beatle lark, and uh, it's probably one of the hardest sections of Get Back to watch. I, I find that very difficult to watch, even the way the camera was placed, because you've got John and Paul in the foreground and you can see George is sitting in the background and, and it's mm. after they've shown the, the sort of movie clips and it's all very nice. And then it sort of descends into John and Paul making fun of the experience, making fun of of the Maharishi um, and George is looking increasingly uncomfortable in the background. And uh, yeah, I just find that very uncomfortable. Like they were just kids. George turned 25 when he was in India. You know, they were so young. Um, With the passing of time, by 1991, uh, George Harrison and Paul McCartney were so convinced of the Maharishi's innocence on the issues of sexual impropriety at the ashram that they each offered very public apologies. And uh, the the Maharishi in 1991, following George's apology, he's very gracious, isn't he? He certainly remembers them. Yeah, I mean, he he was asked specifically, you know, does he forgive them? And he says, the quote is, I could never be upset with angels. Mm. And then in 1992, uh, George 
at the time to, I would say, to some ridicule, hitches his wagon to the Natural Law Party, which was yes. a new political party associated with the Maharishi, um, which believed in yogic flying and transcendental meditation. And uh, even at that stage, you know, George is very explicit that, well, it's all BS, as George says. Yes. All the, all the allegations. Yes. I mean, the, the, the whole the whole sort of thing, I remember, I remember the, the, publicity around that 1992 concert in the Albert Hall. Me too, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that was his last sort of concert, basically. Um, yeah. You know, uh, but also at that, that, around that time, Paul recounts that George phoned him up and said, the Maharishi wants us to stand for Parliament. And Paul's going, what, 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 what do you mean? Said, yeah, you, me, Ringo, <laughs> you know, we, we're going to stand for, we're going to be MPs. Wouldn't that be great? And Paul said, for just just a second, he kind of thought, yeah, that'd be great. And then he thought, you know, we're not going to do the paperwork. We're not going to do that. That would be, a, <laughs> you know, that would be a great lark to campaign to get elected. But, you know, and again, it's that idea that George is swept up with the enthusiasm of this. And then Paul is the pragmatic one saying, now, hang on a minute. And he knows George well enough to know, as you said, you know, once it gets to be a job, once it gets to be a place of work, um, George isn't going to be up to be the no. you know MP for Birkenhead or wherever, <laughs> the MP for Friar Park. Well, as you say, you know this is his George concert ever, his last appearance in the UK, and a, a concert that also features Ringo is all in aid of the Maharishi. It's all because of the Maharishi. So the thread yeah. does continue. Yes, and uh, you know the interesting thing is maybe an entire episode to do about uh, whenever we do George's relationship with uh, Eric Clapton. George is performing on that stage with Eric Clapton's band, but not with Eric Clapton. No, and this is post Japan, and Eric Clapton's post, not there. Mike, Mike Campbell is there, isn't he? Mike Campbell is there, and uh, Gary Moore, who was yes. the support act, he comes on to to fulfil the Eric role in, uh, and Danny uh, actually appears on stage for the encore in Rollover Beethoven. So, uh. um, the Maharishi himself uh, continues his, his global uh, quest to tell us all about the, the benefits of transcendental meditation. He, he passes away in February 2008 at the age of 90. But just before he died in 2007, McCartney brings Stella to visit the Maharishi in the Netherlands, which yes. is another nice closing of the circle. It is a very nice closing of the circle. I, I I wasn't aware of that until we started researching this uh, th- this episode because the Maharishi had effectively not been seeing people for the last couple of years of his life. You know, he he was kind of living uh, in relative seclusion. So it's 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 interesting, and as you say, it is there's there's a nice sort of sense of resolution mm. there. And um, and like I must imagine, if Stella was involved, she must have been somebody who might have wanted that to happen. You know, what was it about, Dad? Can we go meet him? Can we go see him? I'm guessing that's just a guess. Yes, yes. I mean that that there's, that that sounds that sounds logical. And uh, they, they all comment. Uh, they all comment on on his passing. And Paul says, "My memories of him will only be joyful ones. He was a great man who worked tirelessly for the people of the world and the course of unity." And Ringo. Uh, you know, who who perhaps was the least uh, involved back in the day. He says, I feel so blessed that I met the Maharishi. He gave me a mantra that no one can take away and I still use it. Uh, and Yoko at the time gave a quote, John would have been the first one now if he had been here to recognize and acknowledge what Maharishi has done for the world and appreciate it. 
And uh, there's a there's a, a quote from a, an article in the Daily Telegraph in 2011 from George Maharishi. Only ever did good for us. And although I have not been with him physically, I never left him. So George was, you know, a student until the end, as we know. Yeah, and as I say, they they all recognised the benefit of what they they got out of this. And uh, in 2009, Paul and Ringo and Donovan reunited at a concert held at uh, New York's Radio City Music Hall for the David Lynch Foundation, which again raises money and promotes awareness, particularly of TM in in schools. Yeah, and um, I would say yeah. my 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 uh, nieces and nephews all had that. Uh, so some kind of teaching or class on on meditation when they were in primary school. Uh, yeah, I, I I've noticed that with, with with my own kids that there's you know the you know the transcendental meditation is kind of. Uh, in, in current parlance is kind of uh, extrapolated into this kind of mindfulness and, you know, yeah. time for self. And uh, yeah, meditation does does seem to be part of the, the day-to-day of life. I mean, that's part of the, the grand global legacy that, you know, everyone gets this kind of, the, the notion of spirituality or everyday awareness, you know, w- was kind of helped to be accelerated by the Beatles. I mean, you could argue that mantras and meditation are just, you know, they're just forms of prayer. You know, it's just replacing yeah. one form of prayer for another. Certainly growing up in Catholic Ireland, the mantra of the rosary is one type of mantra, you know. Um, so it's, uh, you know, there is a long legacy about that. But I suppose the legacy we're most interested in is that there was an impact on the band. It was the last time that they travelled together and it provokes these, as we said earlier on, these kind of personal songs, but also these reflective kind of slightly irritated songs about the whole process, Sexy Sadie and Not Guilty as well as George's take on things. Yes, I think Not Guilty is interesting because we know that whilst George, uh, you wouldn't say that he was the leader of the band, but certainly in, in 67, early 68, George is setting an agenda for the band in terms of uh, you know, ma- uh, meditation and and uh, the the interest in in sort of Eastern religion, and then suddenly that is debunked or mm-hmm. uh, is is out of fashion, and not guilty seems to be his response to that. And again, we talked about this. You know, the song doesn't make it to the album because there's a slight sense of the airing of uh, dirty laundry yeah. in public there. Um, but to go back to the point that you made, that this is the last time they will travel together. Uh, there, arguably, that the, there isn't ever again that communal sense of, of shared interest, uh, and that post Rishi Cash, they do start to go off and, uh, and do separate things, and the the personality traits and the personal interest that they had been developing and that have always been there mm. do start to come come more to the fore. Well, the, the author, uh, Nicholas Schaefner, wrote in 1978 that following their return from Rishikesh, Lennon, Harrison and McCartney were three very different personalities who seldom saw eye to eye anymore. And Schaefner also said, and I, I kind of like this idea, that the three of them were like a cross-section of how many young people did deal with this kind of spirituality at the time in the night in the late 1960s that he says you know Lenin continued to drift from one self-awareness trip you know, unconventional self-awareness trip to another Harrison intensified his interest and went down the Harry Krishna movement connection after that and then McCartney kind of 
just took it as a you know bourgeois preoccupation of conscious expansion, just put it into his, uh, you know, middle class backpack and moved on to the next thing, which I think is very reductive and unfair and I wouldn't agree with, but I, I know where he's coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what's, your, what's your hot take? Go on, do your hot take. My hot take is that after the Beatles split, they went down the paths of spiritualism, solipsism, alcoholism and Paul McCartney. That is my mantra. That is what they all did. And you can decide who is who. Um, there you go. Uh, it, 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 it sets a background. I, I think uh, it, it doesn't act as a trigger point or act as a split point, but I think it sets the stage for uh, something that will happen over the course of the, I suppose, the recording of the White Album is really uh, yeah. where, where we're, we're going to be looking for a split or looking for a trigger point. Yeah, and you, you kind of, you know, it, it's this kind of, you know, a lot of these things start to make more sense in retrospect, you know, and part of the fulcrum is George, you know, later in the year, he he has a very different traveling experience. You know, he goes to Woodstock, he goes to Dylan, he goes to the band and he feels in those environments that he's, he's in a, a different place. And that's a long discussion for another day as well. But they are all, you know, spiraling off from their Beatle experience to, to get what they want. Um, if in this current day and age, we wanted to go to the ashram, uh, could we? We could, we could, mm. and uh, perhaps we'll we'll do that one day if the petty cash allies. Um, yeah, so the, the 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 ashram was abandoned in the seventies and it was sort of just left to decay, I suppose. Uh, Two thousand and three, the local forestry department took over the site, and uh, it's now in twenty fifteen. It was opened as a tourist attraction. Hmm. And uh, should we should we end the episode by mentioning the recent documentary where uh, Donovan nah. returned to the <laughs> we should uh, really, actually uh, where Donovan returned and uh, walked around and uh, you know it's it's a very it's a very Donovan-y documentary but the footage is fascinating it's a documentary is it 2018 maybe I'm, I'm thinking um, maybe to, to, to go with the 50th anniversary where Donovan goes back to the ashram as it is kept today as this kind of half relic era uh, and, and yeah. walks around. My favourite bit is near the start where he meets some tourists and he kind of tells them, I'm Donovan, you know, I was here, you know, and yeah. it's quite it's quite amusing. But you do get to see the space. There's some nice overlapping footage and he goes into the rooms and you do get a an idea of what this holiday camp was like. Yeah, so there's a lot, I have to say, it's a lot of concrete you know, there's a lot of it. It, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it does not look. It does not look uh, very comfortable. Um, but it it is, it is a very fascinating glimpse of what's there. Um, I have to say, I don't think I'd like to go and stay there. I don't think I'd like to have gone to stay there in 1968. I'm I'm very much with uh, Ringo and Maureen. I think the food and the flies might have uh, might have sent me home early. Yeah. But Paul, Paul was up for Paul was setting up his own ashram in the Mull of Kintyre. Maybe that was his plan with his concrete yeah. floors and his tin roofs. It'd be too too cold up there, I think. Yeah. But uh, it, it it is a very interesting documentary, and uh, Donovan does get to sing some songs. So he does, and he is still a student, and he is still utterly sincere about that. And you know, maybe we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be so sneery, Stephen. It's not becoming. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but it is a fascinating interaction. And as we said way back at the start of part one, it is so short to go from August at the Hilton through to April coming back from India. It is a handful of months. It is about 36 weeks, which has a very definite before and after period. You know, there are loads of little tunnels in the Beatles story where they go in the tunnel one end and they come out the other and there's a 
there's a, another difference that has taken place. Uh, and this is one of the more significant ones. Yes. I mean, I do think that this is hugely significant um, uh, in terms of, I suppose, letting them see they didn't have to travel together. They didn't have to do everything together. And it it does begin to highlight the differences in in their personalities and their interests, which up to that point, the the momentum of touring and simply being a Beatle had had kept in check. You, you know the the, yeah. the the drive, the career focus, uh, particularly in the touring years, was such that the other considerations um, were held in check slightly. Plus, you know, they're all getting older. They they. Uh, that's what happens. That is what happens. Um, but what do you think, folks? Um, you know, shall we arrange a nothing is real trip to the ashram and uh, we'll all jump upon a magical mystery tour bus to, to visit? Um, we remain available in all the usual places. Uh, the website nothingisrealpod.com uh, is your portal to uh, Twitter at BeatlesPod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group with about 6,000 members. Um, we have many, many more bonus episodes uh, over on Acast Plus to go with this season six and all our previous bonus episodes there. And many thanks to all our Acast Plus supporters. Our Acast Plus episodes, our entire Nothing Is Real episodes, just on a whole range of different topics. It's a whole alternate universe of Nothing Is Real. Here's a sneak peek from our next episode, The Bald of John and Cynthia. The two of them together, uh, Julian and Cynthia, they were very, very close. And that was a, a wonderful thing to see in the aftermath. Yes, I mean, I think, uh, you, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's a story that goes on for a very long time after the split and goes on for a very long time after John's death. Um, yeah. And even today, you know, in, in the context of Julian's relationship with Sean Lennon, which seems very good and they seem to be, yeah. you know, very tight as brothers. And uh, we, we've got photographs of them with uh, Stella sitting at the premiere of Get Back. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so in, in that sense, it's a little trite to sort of say, oh, well, it all kind of worked out in the end. But there's clearly... A, a sort of a legacy there but it's that initial 10 year period that I think is just a fascinating yeah. time and it is I think appropriate that Cynthia should get her due for the support yeah. that she was uh, uh, yeah, during those early years uh, you can find out more about that by going to the Nothing Is Real Pod uh, website and um, clicking on support um, but for now I'm Jason Carty I'm Stephen Cockcroft and thanks for listening see you next time deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.